Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Censored the podcast where I find literary smut and read it out to you. I'm Aoife Vrutnach and I'm now living vicariously through books. It's about the only place I can find parties or live music at the moment. I'm on Twitter at CensoredPod if you want to say hi and you can support the show on patreon.com slash censoredpod. Thanks to my latest patron Tom McCool. But honestly... Listening and telling your friends about the podcast is also great. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and I'd even love you forever. I'm that easy. This episode, I'm reading Home to Harlem by Claude McKay. It was published in 1928 and banned in Ireland in 1930, when it was one of three novels on the first edition of The Blacklist. I'm hoping it was singled out for special attention because it was especially offensive. I'd never heard of McKay until I saw him on this list, but he is an important figure in the Harlem Renaissance in 1920s America. The Renaissance was a cultural movement of black American writers and artists based in Harlem, New York. This novel tells the story of Jake, a handsome, charismatic man who lives life to the full in Harlem's jazz clubs and bars. Usually, I read you out the rudest bits, But I won't be able to do it this time, because most of the book is written in African-American vernacular English. Obviously, I wouldn't read out the N-word, but even if I left that out, I'd sound a bit gone with the wind. The black and white Hollywood classics were my Saturday afternoon viewing in the 80s, and I absorbed some truly terrible black American movie accents. I cannot undo that, but I will not offend everyone by talking like that out loud. So the bits I've chosen to read are descriptive prose in standard English, rather than conversation in African-American vernacular English. I'm self-censoring, for all our sakes. To compensate, I'll be drinking a double gin, because the lovely ladies in McKay's book are partial to gin. It's even described as the drink of drinks. Jake himself prefers scotch with soda. Though you could drink anything and be paying tribute to Home to Harlem, most of the action takes place in bars. The characters drink a phenomenal amount of booze. All of the parties are fun, even the end of a night out is dreamy, and the occasional police raids are neither terrifying nor miserable. Interpersonal violence doesn't have much of an edge, 
this is not a gritty urban story. Most of the people are beautiful and everyone is extravagantly dressed. The streets are fabulous fashion parades. And the food sounds spectacular. One character, Susie, is described as part of the ancient aristocracy of black cooks. And she makes incredible food. Here's one of her mouth-watering menus. Cream tomato soup, ragu of chicken giblets, southern fried chicken, candied sweet potatoes, stewed corn, rum-flavoured fruit salad waiting in the icebox. The stars rolling in Susie's shining face showed how pleased she was with her art. To die for. It's a very rich, sensuous narrative. Quite beautiful. But ordinary daytime or worktime lives are barely chronicled, so nobody's drinking coffee or eating breakfast. In fact, McKay spends more time on the effects of cocaine than on the need to drink a cup of coffee. As to why it was banned... I think the first thing that upset the censors was an extramarital, interracial relationship between Jake, a black American soldier, and a British woman. Jake deserted the French front, or rather the back of it, because he spent the war digging rather than fighting, and lived with a British woman in London's East End, where he was perfectly happy for a few years. Now, there's no sex described between this nameless woman and Jake, so the immorality is pretty boring. But the racial politics of this relationship were incendiary in Ireland. I know lots of people think Irish racism didn't really exist when there were few people of colour to be racist towards. Or even worse, that the Irish couldn't feel racial hatred because they had themselves suffered prejudice. This is delusion of the highest order. Lads were racist and denial won't change that. To be honest, it would be odd if we weren't racist, because Ireland was and is a socially conservative, deeply nationalist country. It's impossible to be really nationalist without xenophobia, and the gap between xenophobia and racism is tiny. In the early 20th century, nationalists talked about the Irish race all the time. Irish nationalism stressed how important pure native culture was, how it needed to be nurtured and protected from nasty outside influences. A nation that began its independent life obsessing over racial purity was going to find interracial relationships troubling. And Home to Harlem was also a love letter to jazz. Once Jake gets off the boat from England, he gets dressed up and goes out in the town. He meets a sex worker and they head straight for a club. Jake is deliriously happy to be back home and this paragraph from page 15 ties Harlem to its music. Oh, to be in Harlem again after two years away. The deep-dyed colour, the thickness, the closeness of it. The noises of Harlem, the sugared laughter, the honey talk in its streets and all night long ragtime and blues playing somewhere, singing somewhere, dancing somewhere. Oh, the contagious fever of Harlem, burning everywhere in dark-eyed Harlem, burning now in Jake's sweet blood. It's a beautiful paragraph, and the parties in this book would make you weep for the days of dark clubs, loud music and close dancing. If you're feeling lonely for those in Covid lockdown life, you will get emotional reading this book. 
But for an Irish nationalist of the 1920s and 30s, this was a vision of degradation because they hated jazz. Hated and feared it so much that they tried to ban it. Fervent nationalists believed that jazz music and dance could contaminate the pure Gael. In 1927, the Gaelic Athletic Association in Tipperary resolved to ban foreign dances at Gaelic social functions so that only Irish dances could be performed. There were two sides to the culture war in the 1920s, the Gaelic Irish and the black American jazz musicians. It's not surprising that the GAA, whose aim was to promote all things native Irish, hated jazz, but it wasn't the only one. Trade unions condemned people in dance halls as anti-national. Now, Ireland wasn't alone in this because jazz upset conservatives in all European societies. It was the music of young people looking for exotic American rhythms and it represented African-American culture. For nationalists in Ireland, this was a threat to the Pure Gael project. This purity project is generally remembered as anti-English, but Anglophobia worked very well with racist anti-jazz sentiments. A newspaper in 1928 complained that a jazz-soccer-golf-stick mentality threatened Ireland. So if you liked stereotypically English games or black American music, you were not really Irish. And Irish people were white, at least according to the Christian brothers, who ran many boys' schools. They wanted censorship to protect the pure white Irish from what they called immoral publications. And this was the Christian Brothers' definition of an immoral publication. Certain publications suggest unhealthy thoughts, or tend to degrade or destroy whiteness, or are insulting to modesty, and they are of such a nature that no decent father or mother would allow them to be read by their children. Foreign influences not only led to bold thoughts, but threatened the white race as well. Authors like McKay, who wrote attractive portrayals of African-American life, were dangerous to the nation on many levels. This is not to say that the only parts of the book that offended the censor was Jake shagging a white woman and jazz music. McKay's book is much dirtier than that. This was one of its first reviews in America. Home to Harlem, for the most part, nauseates me and after the dirtier parts of its filth, I feel distinctly like taking a bath. As an example of this filth, I'll read you a bit from page 8, with Jake fantasising about the women of Harlem. Brown girls rouged and painted like dark pansies. Brown flesh draped in soft, colourful clothes. Brown lips full and pouted for sweet kissing. Brown breasts throbbing with love. But that's about as explicit as it gets. There's lots of shagging, but it all happens between the lines or off the page, so it's much more implied filth. So why did this reviewer condemn it so strongly? The reviewer was W.E.B. Dubois, a black sociologist and civil rights activist. Dubois objected to what he saw as sensationalist, stereotypical portrayals of black life. McKay wrote about a Harlem full of sex workers, drink, dancing and free love. Dubois had spent decades arguing with white America that black people were not oversexed or childlike 
and McKay's book seemed like a step backwards. Jake, the main character, is not the ideal that Dubois espoused. He is an uneducated dock worker whose lack of schooling doesn't bother him. He is indolent and beautiful, possessed of an unshakable masculine self-confidence. His life of drinking, dancing and shagging doesn't cause him or any of the other characters in the book any problems. There is no great struggle for equality or advancement in education or work. McKay's focus on working-class people who didn't apologise for their tastes was shared by the poet Langston Hughes. Hughes explained his artistic project like this in 1926. We younger Negro artists who create now intend to express our individual dark-skinned selves without fear or shame. If white people are pleased, we are glad. If they are not, it doesn't matter. We know we are beautiful and ugly too. That's so ballsy to show ugliness when surrounded by a hostile majority that refused to even acknowledge their beauty. The stakes were very high, but that didn't stop Hughes or McKay from telling their truth in art. Hi, I'm Delon Grant. And I'm Francesca Ramsey, and together we host the podcast Let Me Fix It. Each week we explore something from the past, and then we pitch how to fix it for today. But forget about the past, let's talk about the new show of the moment. Delon, did you get a chance to watch the new Queenie trailer I sent you? How dare you send me this amazing <laughs> show that took me back to every messy breakup I've ever had. Thank God I had you through my 20s. Now, you could not pay me to go back and relive those days, but thankfully, we will be living as Queenie navigates her messy 20s. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th streaming on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. And part of McKay's truth was frankness about sex and sex work. The first woman Jake meets in Harlem is a nameless sex worker who he pines after for the rest of the book. He then lives with Rose, a cabaret singer, in an open relationship where she has the freedom to make extra-personal bargains with men from the club. Women who can afford it have sweet men or kept men, dressing them well and giving them pocket money. McKay portrays these characters very sympathetically. He doesn't judge or condemn sex workers or clients. And I really loved this description of a brothel in Philadelphia, which is on page 191. The interior of this house gave Ray a shock. It looked so much like a comfortable boarding house, 
where everybody was cheerful and nice, coquettish girls in colourful frocks were doing the waiting. There were a few flirting couples, two groups of men playing cards and girls hovering around. An attractive black woman was serving sandwiches, gin and bottled beer. At the piano, a slim yellow youth was playing a blues. A pleasant house party, similar to any other among coloured people of that class, in Baltimore, New Orleans, Charleston, Richmond or even Washington, D.C. That hardly reads like a house of sin, does it? One of McKay's missions was to normalise lives often seen as strange or marginal. One character thinks about the word underworld on page 225. Why underworld he could never understand. It was very much upon the surface, as were the other divisions of human life, having its heights and middle and depths and secret places even as they. And the people of this world, waiters, cooks, chauffeurs, sailors, porters, guides, ushers, hod carriers, factory hands, all touched in a thousand ways the people of the other divisions. They worked over there and slept over here, divided by a street. God, I just love that. It's mesmerising. He writes so well, I'm disgusted I didn't read him earlier. I was surprised to read that McKay considered D.H. Lawrence a spiritual brother, because even thinking about Lawrence annoys me. I can't really compare them, because I loved this book, and I fucking hate Lawrence. McKay doesn't take himself as seriously as Lawrence. I think he's more exuberant and much funnier. For example, this bit about French suits on page 289 is just fantastic. There was something a little too chic in American clothes. Not nearly as awful as French, though, Jake Horse laughed, vividly remembering the popular French styles. Broad-pleated, long-waisted, tight-bottomed pants and close-waisted coats whose breast pockets stick out their little comic signs of colour. Better colour as a savage wears it, or none at all, instead of the Frenchman's peaking bit. The French must consider the average bantam male killing handsome, and so they make clothes to emphasise all the angular, elevated, rounded and pendulated parts of the anatomy. What the absolute fuck? Did he just write about being able to see a man's cock through his suit pants? Pendulated parts of the anatomy. Interesting. And this wonderful depiction of men's clothed bodies, how the clothes simultaneously conceal and reveal, brings me on to McKay's sexuality. He was ambiguous about his own sexuality, but it's hard to deny the queer undercurrents in his work. It took a long time for critics to acknowledge the significance of homoerotic themes in McKay's poetry and prose. In 1992, a comprehensive biography grudgingly admitted that McKay was bisexual, but it didn't go further than that. Now, queer literary theory has exploded since then, so there are interpretations of McKay's work that stress his sexual as well as racial radicalism. One article I read discovered a remarkable fact. In 1928, the Oxford English Dictionary cited Home to Harlem to define pansy as a colloquial expression for an effeminate man. On page 30, McKay had written, 
All round the den, luxuriating under the little coloured lights, the dark dandies were loving up their pansies. Seems the Oxford English Dictionary was into queer readings before anyone else. Jazz Age Harlem was relatively tolerant. Drag queens could walk the streets more openly than in other neighbourhoods. McKay has a character praise and defend lesbians on page 129 and describes a beautiful boy with makeup on page 91. And though the main character Jake appreciates women's bodies, the narrative voice is constantly assessing the physical beauty of men and their clothes. If the Irish censor had gotten past chapter one, he would have had a canary over a sexuality that refused simple binary definition. I thought it was a great book, lyrical and intense and compelling. Also, everyone is down to fuck and having a fabulous time. What's not to love? I'm not surprised the Irish censor hated it. McKay wrote a transgressive book that portrayed a vigorous and unashamed African-American culture. This certainly offended a deeply held sense of racial superiority in which pure white girls were the best people ever. And the jazz. McKay calls it that tickling, enticing syncopation and pure voluptuous jazz. It rides and wriggles through the pages. No straight-backed, po-faced Irish dancing could ever appear as tempting. And now it's time to play censorship bingo to see just how rude Home to Harlem actually was. Firstly, breasts. Yes, but not as often as you might expect. That heaving boobs reference I read out is the most noticeable. Bestiality. No, but it is the city. There aren't many animals. Sex work. God, yes, all of the time. Sex for money or as part of a monetary arrangement runs throughout the book. Racism. I didn't talk about American racism as much. I presumed you understood it existed, but obviously racism weaves throughout the book. The sense of oppression by white authorities comes to the fore, especially in the second half. And the book was banned because the censors were racist, so I feel like I should nearly give it a double score. And next is drugs. Cocaine appears at least twice in the book. One character's cocaine high gets two pages of description, beginning on page 157, if you're interested. Politics. At first I thought, well, not explicitly, but the incidents of surveillance by police and vice squad bring the oppressive hand of the state into Harlem. So I'll definitely tick that. Swearing. It's full of idiomatic language, so yes, there's lots of swearing. Bitch and dick appear frequently. A lot of the words have gone out of fashion, so it's harder to spot. And I don't know much about African-American vernacular English of the 20s, but it's definitely sweary in tone and structure. The censors may not have known what the swear words were, but they would have noticed the sweariness. Infidelity. Some characters were married, but were living without their spouses. Living as free and easy single people, so that definitely counts as infidelity. But marriage vows, the state of marriage, it isn't really important in the narrative, so that's more of a technical yes. Next is crime. 
The shady underworld vibe runs through nearly everything, so the text is saturated in the sort of glamorous crime that terrified censors. Genitalia. Well, that tight trousers description deserves an award. So yes, definitely genitalia. Abortion. No, I didn't see it. There wasn't a lot on the unwanted reproductive consequences of sex, but then Jake is a playboy type who's not bothered by anything. Orgies. Well, that depends on how you read Making Love. This is from page 193 in the brothel in Philadelphia. There were four other couples making love. At one table, a big-built, very black man was amusing himself with two attractive girls, one brown-skinned, the other yellow. If you interpret making love as a snog and some petting, that's fairly innocent. Or it could mean one bloke shagging two women in public. The censors wouldn't care, of course. A snog in a brothel is as sinful as an orgy. But I'm going to err on the side of caution and say that's probably not an orgy. Sexual assault. No, I didn't spot anything. Extramarital pregnancy. Again, nothing. It's quite odd that there's lots of sex, but no pregnancies. Masturbation. No, self-love was not a feature of this book. Sex toys. No, didn't see anything. Feminism. No, definitely not. There's some toxic masculinity on display when a kept man who entered into a sweet man bargain is mocked relentlessly over it. Divorce. Well, if marriage isn't that important, neither is divorce. Contraception. Yes, because when Jake comes down with a bout of VD, himself and his mate debate condoms and why they are useful. So a big tick on that one. Menstruation. No, definitely not. Blasphemy. No. But then there's little about religion or faith in it at all. McKay turned to Catholicism in later years, but there's no sign of that here. Oral sex. I'm afraid not, because there's nothing explicit about the sexual acts between people. Graphic violence. Yes, there are fist fights and knife fights and gun fights, so there's plenty of violence. Queer content. I would say yes, very much yes to this one. So Home to Harlem scores 12 out of 25. That's pretty rude. I'm very impressed. It's certainly dirtier than lots of books I've read so far. This is properly smutty. Thank you so much, Claude McKay, because it's hard work reading inoffensive books when you want to find filth. And I enjoyed reading it, with and without the gin to keep me company. Next week, I'll be talking about Nora Holt's book, There Were No Windows. Eight of her books were banned by the Irish censor. She was the most banned Irish woman author, and we never talk about her. Not all Irish writers can be world superstars like Joyce, but his status as a banned author helped his fame. It didn't do anything for Holt, and may have contributed to her obscurity. I wonder if her work was terribly transgressive, or just mildly subversive. Until then, 
I'm going to dance around the kitchen to some jazz music, imagining I'm at the best party ever. Knowing that the censors hated people having a good time will make it even better. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>